This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. Our guest this episode received her pilot's license later in life, actually at age 68. Now she works to get women of all ages interested in flying. In the news, a hard landing for Southwest injures a flight attendant, and a mother-daughter flying first for Southwest, JetBlue's high turnover rate, flight cancellations and delays continue, a proposed rule that would help passengers get refunds, and FAA asks for public comments on seat size. Also, we have an interview with the CEO of Cirrus Aircraft and an Australia Desk report. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 711 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me first is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hello, Max, and everyone else out there. Fun to be here. Great to, great to be here again. Also with us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Looking forward to a lovely conversation this evening. And also <laughs> with us, I was trying to think of something that worked the, uh, the lovely concept in, but I'll just say here's Rob Mark. He's contributing <laughs> editor to business and commercial aviation. I'll think of it later. Part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Just what every guy wants to be is lovely. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, our our guest is lovely. Our guest is Maria Harrison Dooley. She's founder of You Fly Gal. The organization provides scholarships and support for women student pilots. Now, for decades, Maria dreamt of getting her private pilot's license. And finally, at the age of 68, she accomplished that dream. Maria, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Before we started, we were talking about Maria's background, which is which is fascinating. She uh, came to the United States as an exchange student, uh, spent time with her family here, finished school in Germany and more education in the United States, went to Japan, studied or learned Chinese and Japanese at the same time. Any one of those by itself would just be kind of mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> So a very interesting background, but uh, you ended up kind of in the corporate world back in the United States. But flying is something that had always been in the back of your mind. And I think, as I recall, originally with ideas about learning to fly a helicopter. Yes. I was introduced to flying at the Air Force Academy. My host family's oldest son was at the Air Force Academy and so that's when I was, for the very first time, exposed to it. Who was really my inspiration many, many years later was Gene K. Tinsley, a helicopter pilot uh, that I met on... <laughs> yeah, Dave's <laughs> yes, giving um, a thumbs up, yeah. Yeah, she, she was my inspiration. I met her on a flight from Washington to San Francisco, and in those five-and-a-half-hour flight, we became really close friends. And every time when I went back out to California on a business trip to, or to my 
corporate headquarters, I would spend time with her and she would take me up on her hovercraft and we would fly and meet her family. Um, she was a pioneer in the field of aviation and to me she achieved just as many firsts as I had achieved in my life up until then. So I decided that on my bucket list um, I was going to learn how to fly a helicopter. Now, um, then I started, in my corporate world, I started to uh, support the FAA and the Department of Transportation. So I was in the aviation industry. And it wasn't until 2014, so about like 16 years later, when um, my former colleague and good friend, woman friend, uh, and her husband flew up to Maine in their fixed-wing airplane, um, that after they spent, we spent a weekend together, I decided that, no, I'm not going to fly a helicopter. I want to learn how to fly a fixed wing. And why did you decide that? Was it more practical, or what was the reason? Well, yes, I think so, because I heard you know, how they were visiting their kids uh, in California and Illinois and you know, other things that they were flying to, and I thought, gee, that makes a whole lot more sense. So my husband here... Uh, that was six months before my 65th birthday. So my husband surprised me with an introductory flight on their airplane in Virginia. And I wanted to celebrate my 65th birthday there. And it was a DA-42. Of course, I was so green. I had no idea. You know, I was looking more at the screens. And my um, Dave kept saying, look outside, look outside. But once I was done with that, I said, I wanted that airplane, not any airplane, but <laughs> that, that airplane. airplane. <laughs> I had no idea it was a multi-engine airplane. <laughs> so shortly after that, Sue in, um, got in touch with me and said um, to uh, find the, the 99th chapter here in Maine, which is the 99th uh, Women International uh, Pilots Organization that Amelia Earhart founded. So I did, and even though I wasn't a student pilot, I started volunteering with them, and I got to know a lot of the women pilots. Some had been flying for 25 years, some were very young, and I had some things that showed up in life that where I couldn't start flying lessons right away, but I was surrounded by this group of women. So three years Again, three years later, it was my time to start flying lessons. So I imagine the women in the 99s organization were probably very supportive and urging you to follow through on your passion? Well, they, yes, they were. And they wanted me to explore it, too. So I flew with some of them. Uh, some of them had their own airplanes. I went to the meetings. I met the community, the whole community in New England, uh, in the different states. And um, so when I started, um, when I was ready to fly or start flying lessons, I was 68. And like I said, I, you know, people say, my gosh, 68 and you're starting? It's like, yeah, I'm not your average 68 one. By then, aviation flying had become a passion. And I wanted to learn to fly an airplane. And just like when I look back now, I learned skiing when I was 47. I wanted to be up on the mountain to breathe the air and see everything from, a, from the mountaintop. 
And I felt the same way. And what inspired me on that was one of Amelia Earhart's comments. She said, the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. And the journey to learn to fly definitely is not your easiest journey that you're going to go on. What I found, though, was that being part of the 99s and expanding my um, reach to different groups of the 99s was they were my container. They were my container to hold me when I started to doubt myself, when I started to say, gee, you know, am I really made up for this? Am I ever going to solo? Things like that. So I was financing my flying lessons by doing um, hospice shifts. I am a CNA, and I had, you know, it's not your cheapest uh, endeavor. So um, I went, and then I uh, was told that I could apply for scholarships. Well, I applied for a lot of scholarships. But again, I realized that at that time, a lot of the scholarships were going to young, younger, the younger generation that wanted to make a career of it. Well, I didn't give up. I had tenacity. I kept applying and I kept applying. And people said, why do you want to do this? Why do this? And I'm like, well, why not? But then I, I started to have my own motto. And my motto was, flying is my passion. Inspiration is my mission. Because if I could tell people, if I could tell women at any age that if I can do it at my age, they can do it too. And so that's what I used as my motto. And I got a scholarship in the spring of 2019. And a couple of weeks later, we went to Oshkosh for the first time. And um, on the Women's Day, which is the Wednesday at Oshkosh, we all knew that only 7% of pilots are women. What I didn't know until I was at Oshkosh uh, or attended that Women's Day, that only 20% of student pilots that start out their, um, on their journey uh, complete it. 80% do not. And one of the major reasons is that they don't have a community. They don't have, you know, somebody to cry on, on a shoulder when you really doubt yourself. Someone to ask questions. So after we got, we got back, or we came back from Oshkosh, you know, that really stuck with me. And I looked back and realized how much support constantly I had been given and was being given through my chapter and the groups online. And I've held every chapter position, a board position, except treasurer throughout my uh, years, my several years. And out of that came the idea that I've been very blessed. I've been, and I'm very grateful for what I have, but I always feel that I have to give back too. And I didn't really, I knew I wanted to do something, but it was through lots of conversation with George that I came up with the idea that I wanted to start a scholarship. And the scholarship was going to be directed towards women 
student pilots, student pilot, women student pilots of any age, and to become a member of the 99s. You know, I've talked to so many student pilots that have no idea about the 99s. Uh, they have no idea of uh, women in aviation and that there is so much support there. There is so much community there. And so that's how I found it, or that's why I founded You Fly Gal. And it was like, You Fly Gal. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, did you have yeah. any experience creating an organization before, or was this a completely new experience? No, this was completely new. This was something between uh, a conversation between George and I. George really did all the research, you know, he did everything, the administrative stuff. We sat down and, you know, he was like my, he's my personal secretary, so to speak. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and, and, you know, we put down a board, a selection committee, a nomination committee, you know, nom- the nominations can be done by any uh, CFI or double, you know, CF double I. Uh, the only requirements are that you are a student pilot, that you have a medical certificate, and that your CFI nominates you, and the reason why. And even if you are a 99 already, uh, my foundation will still pay your next year's fee or membership fee. And also, you can join a chapter, and it's not required to pay the chapter fee. It's like a donation, but we will take care of that too. (laughs) That's where my my inspiration is now. I want to really create more community. You and I had actually talked about that a few days ago, this this concept of community and how important that is to student pilots to keep them engaged in the process. Maybe you can say a little bit about that. Well, a lot of times when you start flying, you're kind of uh, in a low, you know, in a man's world, and you're, you know, a lone ranger, so to speak, and you don't have a lot of people around you that you could ask questions. I mean, theoretical questions, yet, but women, you know, I had doubts at times. It's like, am I ever going to solo? <laughs> you know, am I ever going to get there? The other side of the coin is that um, when you have a question, you know, you're more likely to approach a woman, a pilot, you know, a woman pilot, whether that woman has experience or has been flying for a long time or whether she's just starting out. Like I had in my pilot's club, you know, I had one other woman that was just starting out and she was kind of leaning on me since I had been um, taking lessons a little bit longer. So I think the community for the women is really, really important because in flight schools, sometimes it's very challenging for women, for student women, student pilots, and to be able to go and reach out to somebody, reach out and have somebody become your mentor, and that's what the 99s is all about. It's like we want to be your mentor. We ask questions, cry on my shoulder, and you know we'll we'll be the wind beneath your wings. So. That's what is is 
to me, really was my wind beneath my wings. It's the community. It's the woman. I was so green when I started. And I say that because I had no, you know, yeah, I'd been around aviation. I had been around, you know, the FAA. I could write a big book on the FAA. For 20 years, I covered the FAA. Um, but it's a totally different uh, uh, story when you now start on your own flying uh, journey. Great, Rob. I, I was going to say, Maria, you mentioned, um, uh, well, you mentioned uh, you could write a book on the FAA. I bet uh, your perspective and George's would probably be similar to mine. I don't know. Maybe not. But, uh, you know, you, you mentioned all, all these other groups, Women in Aviation, the 99s, um, and, and we guy pilots look at the world. And I've been telling people this for 40 years that, you know, women are such they're much better networkers than guys could ever be. And why do you think that is? What, what is it about ladies that make them so good at schmoozing with each other to help each other? Because guys don't do that. Well, you know, it's, I think it's the makeup of women um, are very uh, much easier to take their masks off and to become human beings. You know, we don't have to, it's like, I don't have to prove anything to anybody. And when you're in this field, you know, you get to the point of saying, you know, people say, why, do, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that at your age? And I'm like, my only answer is, why not? You know, and they kind of look at you, especially man, you know, you really are doing this, you know? Um, what is your, you, you know, you're going to make a career out of it? I'm like, no, you know, I'm 72 now. I'm not going to, I don't want to be a commercial pilot. I wanted to get my pilot's license. That was on my bucket list. And, but I think to answer your question is the makeup, you know, women are nurturers. We are caregivers. We open up to um, more easily, and I think it's by your upbringing, by this, um, the culture, the society, and it's not just here in this in the United States. In like in Germany, it's even more structured. Like I grew up in a part of Germany that was quote unquote prim and proper. And to give you an idea, after I came back, just to explain that. <laughs> To give you, um, when I came back from my one year as an exchange student, and I really had trouble with my German when I got back home. And my, my mother looked at me and she said, your German is worse than a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> Take a deep breath and go, okay, yes, you know. And, but I think that's, men were raised more in, a structured way not to show emotions, not to open up as easily. So, you know, and how many times, I don't, I don't mean personally to you, but how many times have you heard where, you know, a boy's told, um, you know, why are you crying? There's, you have nothing to cry about. You know, it's the messages that you're being given. And I think women, because, you know, we're the mothers, the nurturers, the uh, we kind of let go easier of some of the messages and open up more and and be more the the holder 
of somebody else. So I'm curious, Maria, when when you were getting your flight instruction, well, how did you how did you pick your flight instructor, and did these issues come up as you were getting your flight instruction? Um, no, actually not. In I we interviewed several flight instructor instructors, and I have to meet people in person. And because I am very intuitive, um, and do I resonate with the person? Can do I? Will I feel comfortable asking that person question or asking that person the same question, you know, twenty times or whatever? And so, and then you know, what is the structure that the instructor has? And um, I chose an instructor at Lewiston Auburn who was training, he was with CAP, Civil Air Patrol, and he was also um, running the National um, Flight Academy for the cadets. And I met with him. I, we, you know, immediately there was a connection. I resonated with him. And he was very, you know, we did the paperwork, and then he said to me, um, well, this was on a Thursday. Why don't we have our first lesson on Monday? And I was, and then I, I got cold feet, and I said, um, um, "Well, maybe, maybe after Monday." And so we were still filling out paperwork, and all of a sudden, I said, "I said, Greg, I got cold feet." He said, "Yeah, that's normal." I said, "No, let's do it on Monday." Uh, but I became aware of how I had reacted. And he um, was retired Air Force. He had flown a B-52 uh, for um, non-combat, but for, I think, almost 27,000 hours. And I did not realize that size of that airplane until I was at the Dayton Air Force Museum when I I. I was there for 99's uh, meeting, and I just stood there and I had tears in my eyes. I came back and I said, I am so humble. I said, how did you ever see out of that cockpit? And But we had a really, really good relationship, and, um, you know, he mentored me through. And there were times, you know, when he would, he would say, I'm going to say the same thing that I was told in flight school, you know, don't do this, you're going to die. <laughs> Maria, I'm delighted that you explained that part here because when I looked in the show notes, it has your bio and, and it says B-52 pilot instructor. And I thought, how did you get to be an instructor if you learned to fly at 68? <laughs> no, no, no. That's what, that was honestly what was going through my mind. So I'm glad, I'm no, glad you cleared he, that up for me. He, we're really, really close. And I think that's that's an important thing too because I I also had an an, uh, an experience at another flight school, and um, I was assigned or a twenty five year old was assigned to me. He had no clue how he had just gotten his CFI. He had no clue how to you know to relate to me, and um, I had to make the decision. Now I'm I'm not continuing on. Um, and I, you know, and it's interesting, I'd heard that from multiple women, that they had this, that same experience, not at my age, but just because they were women. And I thought, you know, that's not going to happen to me. But it did happen to me. And then I realized, well, you know, I have to stand on my own two feet and just say, no, this is not going anywhere. 
You know, that's so important. There are so many uh, student pilots who stay with whatever instructor was assigned to them, and they don't realize, hey, it's your time, it's your money. If it's a relationship that's not working, you're the one that needs to stand up and, yeah. you know, talk to the boss at the school and say, hey, I need to I need to work with somebody else. And that's just such a, a key element of learning to fly is that relationship. So if you, if you don't relate, it doesn't work. It, it really is. And I think what happens, especially with the young women, you know, that um, they're in their early 20s, they they really, well, the way I say, you know, we acquire wisdom as we age. Um, and, you know, my thing is, um, I have nothing to prove to anybody. This is my money, my journey. I do it my my way. But young women, you know, feel more constrained. You know, they don't feel that they can speak up uh and that's why I think it's another part of being in the community. And, you know, we have many a times, you know, we get an email saying, hey, help me with this. This is what happened to me. What do you, um, you know, what should I do? Um, should I go on? Should, you know, and yes, in the end, it's your own personal decision. But you can hear the different input. It's like I, I couldn't. You know, I had a real trouble landing, and so I got a lot of inputs. Do this, do this, but don't give up, you know. All of a sudden, it's going to click. So that's the important thing. So, Maria, on the foundation, um, where does the funding come from for these scholarships? We get course from the King's School. We're connected with the King's School, and they give the ground training course. Then we have pilot workshops. Um, they're supporting us with the course. And we have pilot outfitters support. So when somebody actually gets their license, they get a flight bag and they can choose what they want on it. Like you fly gal with your name. Um, and then we also give them, you know, we have a T-shirt and a hat and I have, a, you know, 99s. Uh, things that I give to them when they are uh, when they get the scholarship, but we also rely on donations, and that's how we want to grow the foundation. Because right now it's funded through us, but we've gotten donations so we can expand and grow, and um, you know, eventually my goal is to also be able to give scholarships. Can you tell us, um, you don't have to use names, but uh, any any particular folks who have, uh, you know, been through this process, what their stories were like or what they went on to do? Or uh, So far, we've had one young woman in California who got her private license. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had other ones who had no idea about the 99s. And we got two that were nominees here in the New England area, and they've joined the local chapters. They, you know, by being part of it, they can spread the word too. And we had one large donation from uh, George's instrument uh, instructor that he gave him free, well, free instructions for his... If I can jump in... (laughs) All of the money that I would have spent to this instructor as I got my instrument ticket last year at the age of 73, he donated 
to you, fly gal. Ah, ah, very nice. Yeah. And I, I can give you a name, and that is Greg Jolda, who also runs the aviation program at the University of Maine in Augusta. Yes. And he loves, he know, flies know seriously. Yes. You know, yeah. Yes. Yes. And he does fly yeah. <laughs> ah, Didn't know that. So, um, but we're growing it. It's you know, it had a small start. It's growing. We have more and more. We're going to do more marketing. And um, now that we we George and I have more time to go around to go uh, to aviation events and to fly-ins and um, you know to ninety nines. Um, Events too. The pandemic kind of yeah put a happened, put know, monkey wrench in things at a time where you know and everybody it every like with everything else it just kind of uh, went stopped the in person and um, so that's where we are right now. It sounds terrific. It it sounds like you're on a a real mission here. That's a passion. I mean, there, there's two aspects of this. Well, at least two that are, that I find fascinating. One is that you know an individual uh, gets their license, their pilot's license, at age 68. Because I think most most people would have given up by then, even if that was if even if it was their dream for many many years. I, I can see a, a lot of people thinking, well, you know, that's come and gone. You know, it's it's too late to do that. And you've shown that. That's not the case at all, or it doesn't need to be the case. What would you tell those people that say, well, I always wanted to learn how to fly, but I don't know, I'm too old now. What would you say? I get a lot of those questions, especially from middle-aged women in their 40s, early 50s. And yeah, I would love to do that. You know, I've been around aviation, but I'm too old to get started. And my, you know, and my response and uh, there's a couple of other women, too, and they're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, too old? What is that? You know, yeah. I, you know, look at me. If I can do it, you can do it, too. But, you, you know, the, the bottom line is you have to be really passionate about it because you're going to run into a lot of um, obstacles. And, and just like with other things in your life, but this one, it's easy to give up. And that's where what I have found, you know, well, you know, it was too hard. There was too much uh, studying. I had to, you know, I've gone already through four instructors and I don't want, and every time I go with another instructor, I have to start all over again. And, you know, that's why it's so important to find an instructor that you resonate with that and that you stay with. Yes, I had to kind of let, um, let go a little bit and work with other instructors just to get a different perspective and hear the same thing just in a different way. But the the main thing is to have a solid base. I've heard so many stories where people get uh, women get discouraged, young women, um, mothers that really want to do it, but you know, and saying, well, I've got to wait, but by the time my kids are out of, um, you know, out of the house, I'm going to be too old. I'm like, no, 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 look <laughs> at me, you know. That's why I think all that had me come up with this. If flying, flying is my passion, but inspiration is really my mission because if I can inspire somebody, whether they're, you know, whatever age they are, to say, hey, if she can do it, I can do it too. And 
I can get in touch with her if I, you know, if I'm down and I think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I do want to just not go on. I never got to that point, but I did, you know, I did doubt myself at my, and it's a very human feeling, you know, and I had people around me, even when I, you know, when I didn't win the scholarship. In fact, I came across a card today that said, well, so sorry, your application was perfect. And I'm like, well, it wasn't my time, Hmm. you know, and that's kind of how I would say, you know, I'll try again. And I think a lot of the young people then get so discouraged that they don't go on. And if they have just one person that can say, come on, I'm here for you. I can just imagine most guys uh, getting a letter back that says your uh, application was absolutely perfect. And then they would look at it and tear it up, kick the wall and say, well, if it was so damn perfect, why didn't I get the scholarship? God, and they throw something, and I, I've never experienced that myself. I'm but sure, I've Rob. heard of men who have. Yeah, I applied for the Amelia Earhart scholarship three times, and uh, you know, and the first time, you know, yeah, granted. I mean, the chapter had to support it. The uh, scholarship chair, had, you know, everybody had to vote on it, and they did. But my, you know, my letter wasn't. Uh, my letter was me. And they were, you know, there were a lot of other competitors, and they, a lot of them were younger. And I looked at that, and I'm like, well, you know, I understand. They all want to make a career of it. Mm-hmm. And, but there's me, too, you know. And then I'm like, well, okay, I'll, I'll try again. I think it grounds you a little bit more. For me, it was like it grounded me more. I learned more. I knew how that I did want to go on. And... I think for me it was to show the trustees that if, you know, why did I want to do this if I wasn't going to make a career of it? Why do you want our money, so to speak? And, you know, and I, I started, I remember I started my letter saying, I'm not your average 60, uh, you know, 60 some year old woman applying for this scholarship. And, you know, I went on to say, you know, I, this is really my passion and, out of that came then, but I want to inspire people. Mm, fantastic. And I think I can do that. <laughs> Maria, where do you like to fly? Well, my favorites are the Diamond 20, the DA-20. I, I did most of my training in a Cessna 172. And then I did, um, I did my, my, the end of my training in a DA-20. I had my. But you my, want the DA forty two. Yeah, I, I wanted the DA forty two because that's what I. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first one, yes. but um, you know I didn't. I had no idea, but um, we're kind of eventually we're looking at a DA forty for the two of us. A DA forty that is plenty. And where do you like to fly to? What kind of destinations do you like to go to? We fly, you know, we fly around Maine, and we've gone up to Vermont, and, um, you know, for me, it's just being up there and seeing the the world from up above and um, how different it looks. And so I have one of my favorite um, quotes, and it's not from Amelia Earhart, but this is the one that really speaks to me. It says, we who fly 
do so for the love of flying. We are alive in the air with this miracle that lies in our hands and beneath our feet. And I have that on my in my cockpit because to me that's you know that's why I wanted to fly. That's why I wanted to to go up in the air and um, see it from above. Fantastic, amazing. So Maria, where do we learn more about you, Fly Gal? Our website is youflygal.org. There's a little video uh, of when I was interviewed when I was still a a student pilot by a woman here that was doing a special project. We have a page with the um, recipients that were awarded the scholarship and also the sponsors, and we have a donation button, too. (laughs) So if people want to contribute... To this, if they, people want to contribute, we would be very uh, thankful and grateful for that. Yes, they can. All right, very good. Well, Maria, it's been uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. The pre-show is uh, almost a completely uh, additional story about your life, which is fascinating too. It just uh, in, is kind of intriguing. I I think George is kind of a lucky guy. I hope he realizes that. <laughs> well, oh, don't worry. I <laughs> definitely realize it. Good, good answer, George. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it was written in front of me. I had to read it. Yeah. <laughs> he's my rock, and but he's also my personal secretary because there's many a times, uh, you know, I still do nursing shifts and um, do other things, and so uh, sometimes, you know, I have to say. Can you do this for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and my my chapter people laugh because you know my uh, chapter secretary one time she said uh, and she said you do have a personal secretary at home don't you? <laughs> I said yes. <laughs> well, isn't there an old saying somewhere that said behind every successful woman there's a good man? Yeah. <laughs> I I think uh, yeah. I, I think I heard that somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yes, and if not, we'll make it happen right now. Amen, George. Yeah, very good. Definitely. Now, yeah. I, I am honored to be with this lady. Believe me, she has done so much in her life, and I keep on you know bragging about her, but what she's accomplished as an aviator um, it, it's just been incredible. I've, I've been an aviator for 50 years, and to see what she's done, we, we have an, an in-house joke. Um, we both come to some part of aviation at a late age. I didn't start my instrument work until I was 70, 72. But I got a 97 on my instrument written, whereas but, it's a little bit more than Maria got on her, her, her private written. I I wanted, yeah, I think you heard that. I wanted to get a 90 on my my knowledge test, and I got an 85, and I was, I walked out of there, and I was so down, you know, and I was like, man, I wanted to get a 90. And then everybody, you know, and as soon as I said that, even the trustees, they were like, that's great. Don't you know that's really good? Most people only get basically their minimum, which is 70 or 72. You should be really happy about that. And see, that's the type of support you get. And and then I thought, well, yeah, you know, I did really good. And so we have this this inside, this in-house joke, you know, he, he'll say, did I tell you I got 97 on my test? And I'm like, yeah, did I tell you I got 85? But 
Hmm. Mine was in a short period of time. It, it took me. It took me fifty <laughs> years to get to ninety-seven. It only, it only took her a couple to get so, to eighty-five. We have a lot of laughter in our lives, and I think that's really important, too. That's always good. That's always good. Well, Marie, it's been wonderful getting to know you a little bit, and we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope I meet you, all of you, um, in in person one day. What's the the pancake thing? Spurwink. Yes. Uh, have, Have you been to that? I was. I saw Max there this year, yeah, and Maria and I were there. Oh, is that how this whole thing? That's came right. Up? I met George at yeah. Wink. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so let me ask an inside question: How were the pancakes? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're very good. I mean, with real maine syrup and, and real blueberries. syrup. Oh, you boy. understand that by by asking this question, we are going to get emails and letters of complaints. <laughs> Too much pancake news. On to the aviation news, an item from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. Southwest Airlines flight attendant ends up with broken back after hard landing. Boy, um, who whoever thought landing was a, a, a risk area for flight attendants? I, I certainly didn't. But this was a Southwest Airlines flight attendant. She suffered a, a compression fracture to her T3 vertebrae. After a firm landing, that's what it says. It's firm landing. I know, uh, Rob. Is there a technical definition between a firm landing and a hard landing? Um, not that I know of. Uh, I mean, I've made a couple of hard landings in jets over the years, and man, you you knew they were hard because they you expected the the gear to come up through the wings. But seriously, what what I think really amazed me about this is that this uh, flight attendant was was buckled in. She was in her jump seat. And uh, all I can think of is that uh, to get a compression fracture, I'm, I'm not a doctor, sorry, I don't even play one. But having had a, a recent history of spinal issues, I've learned that certain kinds of... Uh, compression can really can really hurt but again i was trying to think of the the vertical descent rate that this airplane must have had to uh to injure this lady the way that it did and how is this airplane still flying i mean i i i i hope they wrote up the airplane when they got on the ground after they got the uh, the woman to the hospital but still uh it, that it's a it's a really hard landing. So this was into uh, Santa Ana's John Wayne Orange County Airport, and part of me is wondering, you know, that airport has got very interesting takeoffs and landings due to noise abatement. Amen. And uh, and they Santa and John Wayne because uh, I have family lived in Laguna, so I've flown into John Wayne a lot, and. John Wayne, they come in really steep and they leave really like rockets. I'm assuming she was at the front of the aircraft. Oh, the rear. It makes me wonder. What? The rear. Yeah, I think she was in the back. That's even weirder. That means that basically anything after the wing sort of snapped. Like you said, Rob, I don't know how that aircraft is still flying. 
I, I thought when I originally read it, I thought she was in the front of the airplane, you know, and it came down hard on the nose gear. But if it came down, if she just happened to her in the back of the airplane, I mean, there's got to be stress fractures after just after the wing. Yeah, and I'm surprised that other people didn't have them. Of course, we don't know. There may have been people that that walked off the airplane later that said, boy, you know, that was a really hard landing. And and they may not have realized it at first. Well, the NTSB conducted an investigation, but they closed it without making any specific recommendations. Well, you know what they didn't tell you, though? that They didn't tell, they didn't say it in writing that whoever the flying pilot was on that lake, don't let them land at John Wayne again. <laughs> yeah. Another Southwest Airlines item. Um, this is mother and daughter lead historic Southwest Airlines flight to St. Louis. So this is the story of uh, the mother, Holly Pettit, and the daughter, Keely Pettit. They flew a flight from Denver, which is their hometown, to St. Louis last month in, in July. And uh, Holly was the captain and Keeley was the the first officer. And this is apparently the first time uh, there's been a mother-daughter uh, flight crew like this, at least for uh, for Southwest Airlines. I think this is pretty cool uh, because, of course, I I wish my daughter had had a... Uh, a, an interest in flying the way that I did, uh, but I gave her a lesson, and she said, "Yeah, that was cool. I'd like to fly someday, but not right now, Dad." Uh, and then she went off to college to work in TV. But anyway, uh, but so again, I think it would be so cool to fly with one of your children in the cockpit, a boy or a girl. So this lady was lucky enough to do it, and. I don't believe, and Maria, maybe you know more about this, but I don't know that I've ever seen a mother-daughter combination in the cockpit. Have you? Um, I do. Uh, there are Mary Latimer. Uh, she has a, a school in Vernon, Texas, and she and her daughter and her granddaughter fly together. But not commercial. But they have a flight school, and not commercially. Well, the daughter was part of the Southwest internship program, the Campus Reach internship program, which is kind of interesting. And um, college interns at Southwest, of course, gain business experience, but um, they also get to see the Southwest culture and they're also free. The interns are free, as well as full-time employees are eligible for free, unlimited space available travel to anywhere Southwest flies. So that's kind of a nice perk. But it's an interesting program. So you get to you get to have fun, enjoy your work, get paid as well. Intern programs like this are, uh, yeah, are, are really great. All right, over to JetBlue. Well, this this is also from Paddle Your Own Canoe. JetBlue boss says airline is overhiring staff because existing employees are quitting en masse. So JetBlue's hiring. So are most other airlines. But apparently employee retention is a big, big problem. And the turnover is very high. And so what the airline is doing is overhiring because they know that so many folks are going to leave. JetBlue, of course, uh, maybe Rob, maybe you're aware, but JetBlue has had some criticism from the uh, flight attendants and from the union over management practices. I don't know if you've run across 
any of that, Rob? Uh, well, first, I want to compliment you on on Moss. I I thought it was en masse, but uh, what do I know? Uh, well, since Maria no, I mean, knows so many foreign languages, I'm trying to sound yeah. educated. Or you know. okay, that's it, uh, did it work? I, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I I don't know. Is that is that French? Is that what that's from? On Moss? Oh, yeah. Okay, it's well, yeah. okay, what do I know? Uh, but anyway, you know, of course, JetBlue. It's Blue, a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, why is JetBlue hiring uh, on Moss? Uh, well, because every airline in the nation, and in fact, in, in parts of Europe, too, uh, people are quitting because they don't like the way they're being treated. This is an age where people uh, say, you know what? I don't need to do this. I, I, I you know, it, it's fun, but if you treat me like dirt and, and you work me to death and I get minimal wages just for the privilege of being in an airline, they go, I don't, I don't need this. And uh, of course this all started, you know, around, well, before the pandemic, but it really took off when the pandemic hit and not just in the United States, but airlines said, Hey, pfft, we're going to get rid of as many people as we can because traffic is really going to go down. And then the bottom fell out and they still haven't caught up uh, with, uh, with the problem of not having enough people to staff, not just the airplanes, but the ground crews and, and everybody else. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that much, but of course, JetBlue is going to be really busy these days now that they've agreed to buy spirit. So, who knows how that's going to change the culture that uh, people don't say, oh, man, I hated JetBlue before. Now I really don't want to work here. And I'm sorry, I, I don't mean any offense to any JetBlue guys or ladies, uh, but that that kind of, you know, chaos may be coming. Well, yeah, and that was all I could think about when I was reading the article. I was like, um, yeah, we, we have done this show so long that – None of these mergers ever, anybody ever comes out, as far as crews go, pilots or flight crews, um, come out happy because there's the seniority issues. I mean, how long did Northwest fight with whoever (laughs) they, Delta. Delta. Yeah, yeah, for their seniority issues in um, United and American and U.S. Air. You know, if, if people are unhappy and you would think that JetBlue has got a decent reputation. You think if they were happy, they would be, but it's like, okay, and now you're throwing a whole merger to a low-cost airline. So the people at JetBlue are probably going, uh, I can't stand this place. And the people at Spirit are going, oh, my God, look at what a gold mine we've hit. Hmm. It's just going to be a mess. Like Rob said, it's it's basically a um, employee market, not an employer market. You know, the employer's... They don't shape up. There's always somebody better around the corner. And, you know, this is a big flip from where we were five years ago, where, you know, it was it was the employers that that were ruling ruling the roost. So there's a a really interesting statement in here that I think really illustrates the issue that JetBlue is facing, which is that the company estimates that by the end of the year, half of its workforce will have been with the airline for less than two years. Suggests young, suggests uh, not as much experience as maybe someone who had 
been there for a long time would have. Well, but, you know, companies uh, go back in history, I, I mean, t- decades and decades and decades, and, and big companies never learn this. They just say, well, hey, pff, you don't like it here? Leave. And uh, and they watch their experienced people leave, and then the quality of the product and or the service declines to the point that uh, people say, I don't want to do business with that company anymore. And they go, where did all our customers go? What happened to them? I mean, don't they realize how astounding we are? Uh, and, and I don't mean just airlines. I mean, I have a couple of phone companies I can think of uh, that, uh, you know, fit that bill and a few other uh, companies. But again, they they just never seem to get that. Yeah. And I think you brought up there really is, a, in my mind, a generational component to this as well, because typically in any corporation, the the, the leadership team tends to be of an earlier or older generation than the entry-level generation. And I know that's something that when I, you know, before I retired, when we, when I was working, that we would try to explicitly address because you have a tendency to apply, you know, the, the work ethic, the work, st- you know, the standards, the, the whole outlook towards employment, you know, of the generation that you're in. And if the incoming folks, uh, you know, view all those kinds of things differently, you can't, well, you can, but it's not advisable to take the the strategy where you say, well, those, those young kids, they need to, they need to learn to, to work the way we do. You know, you have to, you know, you have to at least take into account that a younger generation may have a completely different viewpoint of employment and work and and all of that. So I'm not saying and that actually. Oh, go ahead. I'm I was just going to say I'm not saying that JetBlue isn't doing that, but it's it's very often a a, a problem in corporations. And and very often too, uh, companies don't seem to learn that sometimes new people have some better ideas mm-hmm. on how to make a system operate. Uh, take my friends at FAA. I mean, they never learned after the strike. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, it, I, 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 I have a lot of friends who are controllers now, and, and they have the same gripes about uh, FAA management that they had, you know, that we had before the strike. And uh, did, did the agency learn? Eh, doesn't look like it. Mm. Uh, next one, airlines cancel more than 1,500 U.S. flights Friday. That's this past week. So bad weather's caused— Did we already do this one? I know. This is like <laughs> a repeat. Last couple of months. Um, so the the outcome of this, or one of the outcomes of this, I think, is more important than— uh, than the uh, than the actual report, but yeah. uh, flight re- FlightAware reported more than seventy seven hundred delays in the United States on one day alone last week. Now, of course, volumes are up. TSA screened uh, the day before that screened two point three million passengers in in a day. So, I mean, we know the reasons we we've talked about this uh, a lot, but now we see that the the U.S. Department of Transportation has proposed a rule that would expand the circumstances when airline passengers can get refunds. Now, the reason this is coming up is with all these delays and cancellations, the DOT is getting a lot of complaints from the flying public about not getting refunds for for flights that were delayed or they didn't take or or whatever. 
So what we see is that under the current rules, passengers are entitled to refunds if an airline has, quote, made a significant schedule change and or significantly delays a flight and the consumer chooses not to travel. Okay, well, that sounds okay, except that there is no definition of significant. And so that you know that that sets up the whole system for arguing and being disappointed and so forth. So we have a uh, a proposed rule now that would define the terms of a significant change, and uh, basically it includes things like changes that affect the departure and or arrival time times by three hours or more. See, this is specific now: three hours or more for a domestic flight, six hours international. Changes to the departure or arrival airport, changes that increase the number of connections in the itinerary, and changes to the type of aircraft flown if it causes a significant downgrade in the air travel experience or amenities available on board the flight. To me, this sounds like something that should have been done a long time ago, but it's become increasingly important to take care of now. Well, of course, too, uh, for a long time, the airlines have told people, look, you want a refundable ticket, then you have to pay for a refundable ticket. But you wanted the the bare bones, cheapest ticket possible. And before you bought that ticket, we told you this amount is not refundable under any circumstances. Uh, and um, uh, they might give you a credit to your uh, frequent flyer account or something like that uh, that would allow you to use that that dollar amount uh, at another time, usually within a year, but we're we're not going to give the money back. And now you're complaining that you don't get the money back. Well, I can kind of see the airline's side of that. Uh, But still, I think what people are really upset, well, I, I mentioned this a couple of times that my daughter got stuck at LaGuardia on Memorial, the Memorial Day weekend when all hell broke loose in the delay world in the States. And on a, on a uh, Thursday afternoon, they just said, you know what, your flight's not going to Chicago for a while. And then it became later tonight. And then it became, well, we've canceled it completely and we can't get you out for three days. Well, luckily she knew somebody in, in New York that she could stay with, but but what does somebody do that came in from, uh, uh, you know, from uh, uh, Mississippi uh, to visit a relative in, in uh, you know, upstate New York and, and, and couldn't get out of LaGuardia? What are they supposed to do in Manhattan for a couple of days? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and they go, well, sorry, that's the way it goes. I mean, it's not a cheap place to... Uh, to stay uh, while the airline tries to figure it out. And that's the trouble is the airlines don't try to figure it out. They just go, eh, sorry, yeah, can't help you. There's quotes by uh, a couple of folks in this article, past guests, actually. Uh, One was Henry Hardevelt, of course, is with Atmosphere Research Group. And he said, I think the DOT has heard that passengers are fed up with some of the sleight of hand that airlines are pulling and some of the actions that are not consumer-friendly. And then uh, Scott Keyes, the founder of Scott's Cheap Flights, we had him on the show not too long ago. He said, the problem, I think, 
up until now has been that you as an individual traveler don't necessarily know what a significant delay on Delta versus American versus Southwest versus Spirit is. It could be significantly different on each airline. And those airlines don't even necessarily mention explicitly what they consider to be a significant delay. (laughs) So this is all in an NPRM, right? There's a notice of proposed rulemaking out there. Airline Ticket Refunds and Consumer Protections. We'll have a link to uh, to that NPRM on regulations.gov. And as always, there's a 90-day comment period, which in this case started, I believe, August 3rd. So if you have some thoughts and would like to contribute your uh, message to the uh, Department of Transportation, you can do so under that NPRM. Yeah, but the only thing that I took exception to uh, for that uh, NPRM was that to figure out how to comment and where and all that. I mean, the, the, the rule is 116 pages long. And honestly, I, I'd like to comment, but I'm not going to dig through 116 pages before I comment so that I don't end up sounding like an idiot because, oh, didn't you read back on page 87 where we addressed that exception? Uh, I, I mean, it's it's just nuts. Well, there's another uh, NPRM out there, as it turns out. Uh, from the points guy, we see how small should airplane seats be? The FAA wants to hear from you. Um, well, actually, the FAA is looking for comments. This is uh, under the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act, Congress directed the FAA to issue rules for minimum dimensions for passenger seats. Now, here's the key to all this, necessary for passenger safety. So the FAA has conducted simulated emergency evacuations. They're now asking for public comment. But the big point here is that it's safety-related, not comfort-related. So I think probably 95% of what they're going to hear from the public is going to end up being comfort-related because I don't know how many of us in the public can authoritatively comment on the safety-related aspects. The only thing I could say is that airplanes have to be, be able to be evacuated in 90 seconds. Yeah, with what, a third of the exits blocked or... Is it half the exits blocked or something like that? So many years ago, there were some actual tests, some actual simulations run where they got a bunch of college students and otherwise healthy people who, I don't know, maybe they paid them 25 bucks a head. I don't know what it was, but in any event. And that data has been used year after year after year to to indicate that more modern aircraft, when they come along, can can meet this 90-second rule. But... The issue is that the people involved, the test subjects, are not representative of the flying public in terms of age, weight, uh, physical disability, all of these other things. So, I mean, that would be my comment here. But did you not, uh, I mean, at least I I thought was interesting in that story is they showed people swimming to get out where they just dive over the top of the people (laughs) that are already standing up and they kind of make their way to the exit and uh, and that that's considered uh perfectly normal uh but again what really struck me when i read this was now what in the world would make the FAA or the DOT 
want to know what the minimum seat width on a jet would be. Who would have the most uh, the most to gain from squeezing the seats as tightly as possible? Uh, I thought, well, the airlines, uh, but certainly po- perhaps the Boeing and the Airbuses in the world that can say, look, we figured out, remember how it used to be six abreast? Now we figured out how to do four and three. So we can squeeze you in and you only have to sit a little sideways for about half the trip and then you can move the other. I don't know, but think about it. Why would the FAA start asking? I mean, how much smaller could you make the seats? Yeah, well, Congress directed them to ask the question or or investigate it. Sure. And what do you think from uh, uh, got the uh, Congress stirred up? Perhaps some lobbyists for one side or another. Perhaps. Uh, I'm sorry. Know. I'm sounding a bit cynical. Yeah, you are sounding a bit cynical. I used to work for FAA, so what can I tell you? Yeah, yeah. I just think that... <laughs> they made me that way. <laughs> they did. I don't know. I just think in real world, in, in a real-world situation, I would like to see data that supports a 90-second evacuation because I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, with with representative. Yeah, that's what I mean by real world. I mean, large people, small people, tall people, uh, short people, kids of of a representative age. They never talk about. uh, At least I don't think I've ever seen them talk about. uh, You know, dragging six year olds down the aisle to try to get out in an emergency. Now, maybe they did. Uh, One of the people that. uh, know more about aircraft certification, might be able to drop us a line and say, absolutely, they did that. I, I just have never heard about it. But since you brought it up, I would be curious about that, too. Yeah. All right. What's up with the geeks? Rob, anything uh, from you this week? Nothing? Uh, Rob shaking his head? I, I I ain't doing nothing because I still can't fly. Uh, I don't get, I haven't gotten the all clear yet for the... Uh, from the docks, and uh, I, I think it'll be four or five months since I've been able to fly. And Maria, you can understand that that's it's killing me because I've been flying a couple of years more than you. But uh, <laughs> you know, because I'm about George's age, and uh, you know, it uh, it it just it's terrible. So I hate it. But I still go out to the airport every Friday and have lunch with my friends and watch the airplanes take off and land. Good, Good for you. $100 hamburger. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you go to the airport in Sedona, Arizona, they have it on the menu. $100 hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> David, how about you? Anything uh, exciting? Well, actually, um, a project that I'm working on um, actually – Maria would be appreciative of. I'm actually redesigning our Whirly Girls exhibit. And one of the oh. one of the people I'm featuring in our Whirly Girls exhibit actually is Jean Tinsley. Oh really? Jean has a historic first. She was the first woman to ever fly a tilt rotor aircraft. A tilt rotor, yeah. Yeah, she flew the X V fifteen. Yeah. So I've been slowly, as I've been going through graduate classes, um, working on the our Whirly Girl project to develop that at the museum. So it, it's cool. It's definitely growing. I mean, we've basically had a very small display and I'm trying to bring some more diversity to the museum. So we're, we're going to have a much larger whirly bird 
um, and a Whirly Girl, uh, which Whirly is girl. yeah, the Whirly Girl Association is basically the 99s for women who are helicopter pilots. Helicopter, yeah. The first one was Hannah Reich, who flew the FA-61 in the 30s and was the world's first woman's helicopter pilot. And the FA-61 technically was the world's first helicopter. So women have been in helicopter aviation a lot longer than they've actually been in normal general aviation. So, And also... Because of our location, it's also significant that we have um, Amelia, who took off and was the first woman to fly a rotor craft, but flew a Pitcairn autogyro around the corner at the Willow Grove Airfield, which was Pitcairn Field, which eventually became home to the Willow Grove Air Force Reserve Facility, which my father was base civil engineer. So I have a sort of a, a connection to that. So that's what I've been working on at the museum, slowly but surely. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. All right, we have an Australia news desk. Stephen Grant sent one in. Let's see what the boys down under have to say. Dateline, 6th of August, 2022. Well, g'day folks and welcome to the Australia Desk for this episode, which I believe is 7-11. And Grant, yet another year has passed where we didn't go to Oshkosh. What's going on? Yeah, I know, I know. It's just uh, slack, I guess. Slack. And and, and possibly broke. I don't know. Por que no los dos? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I don't, are we allowed to leave this prison island now? I don't know. I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I kid, I kid. I know we people are. Have been, know people we have been doing it and bringing back all sorts of new ver- variants of bloody... COVID and causing Great. all sorts of gr- grief and yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's kick this one off, Grant. And look, normally we like to keep things pretty upbeat here on the Australia Desk, but we want to start this report by acknowledging the passing of a few people that are uh, quite important to us. Uh, Grant, not the least of which, of course, is your father, Jim, who passed away between uh, this report and the last one. Yeah, that's right, Matt. Of course, we've uh, had the laying of the brick, the ceremonial brick for Glenn Towler. Uh, for those who were at uh, Oshkosh, were able to go yeah, and... A good man, a good man. Yeah, no, I met, met up with him a number of times in, at Oshkosh and also in New Zealand on visits over there. And uh, we've also had the sad passing of Dave Higdon from the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. And yeah, this, the, I believe we've had the anniversary of the passing of your father as well. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, just this week, that's uh, actually 20 years. But I would note that too because he had a, a great influence on my um, love of aviation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah as did my father. Uh, former New Zealand Air Force uh, air crew on Sunderland's and then Orion's went over to the US to pick up their very first Orion's. Lots of stories of hanging out in the US and getting up to mischief in um, in San Francisco out of Moffat Field, uh, flying training missions out to Hawaii and things like that. And, of course, one of the times when a, uh, a senior officer in the P3 operation decided to take a P3 for the weekend to go visit family in Massachusetts uh, out in Cape Cod. So uh, flew to the base and grabbed a car and went over with, of course, Dad being part of the crew. So... Yeah, he he got to experience some amazing stuff while in the states, and uh, yeah, so sad to sad he's gone, but it was a heck of a life. And um, unfortunately, aside from about a half hour chat with him that I was able to record for um, for Dave Homewood's Wings Over New Zealand show, we never got a chance to sit down and record all his stories because he had some crackers. 
Yeah, and, and uh, folks, uh, Grant's dad, Jim, he was an absolute gentleman. I had the privilege of meeting him several times, and uh, you know, people often say Grant knows how to tell a story. Well, I can tell you where he inherited <laughs> that from because uh, boy, could Jim tell some stories. A, a lovely man, mate, and my condolences to you, my friend. It's um, yeah, it's, a, it's a sad occasion. Thanks. We're uh, we're planning an ashes scattering. Mum's um, decided she wants to join the ceremony when she goes and have her ashes commingled with Dad's um, in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, we, if everything still is around and available, the the plan is to commingle and scatter their ashes from an aircraft uh, near Hobsonville, where Dad, uh, when they first met, Dad was on the Sunderlands, based out of there, and in Fiji, of course. And right across the bay is uh, Fanuapai, where the Kiwis operated the P3s. So we're looking at doing a, uh, a touch and go there, get permission to do that. And so, yeah, it'll be a great commemoration. Um, we've just got to wait. It was going to be early next year, but mum's decided she wants to join the fun, so to speak, when she goes. So, uh, yeah, we'll be, that's all on hold at the moment. Oh, dear. And, of course, you mentioned Dave Higdon too, Grant, um, a pioneer in uh, aviation podcasting along with uh, the whole UCAP crew. And we, uh, we've been lucky to meet Dave a few times too. And I have some uh, fond memories of going to Oshkosh and probably the, the cheapest Chinese restaurant those guys could find. <laughs> I remember it was hilarious. It was actually Thai. Well, Thai, well, there you go. Because <laughs> I, got, I got in trouble because I was chatting in Thai and the, girl said, the Thai girl said, actually, I don't speak Thai. And everyone cracked up at the table. <laughs> Well, Grant, I bet people don't speak Australian either. And, uh, boy, uh, that uh, sort of brings us on to this next theme. We have a new airline starting, Grant. And, uh, well, now Americans probably won't appreciate this, but I know our Australian and probably New Zealand listeners will probably cringe, as I did. It's called, are you ready, Bonza Airlines. Bonza Airlines, Grant. Good grief. Yes, truth. Beauty, mate. She's a Bonza. Ripper. So Bonza is is like Anya. Good Bonza, it's Australian for good. Uh, that's former. It's some former Virgin Blue folks who have set this up uh, in conjunction with Triple Seven Partners, an investment firm based in Miami, and uh, they're getting, I think, it's five seven three seven Max eights, uh, all in economy, and away they go. Yeah, interesting too. And the booking process they've actually gone with is um, all by app, I believe. Mate, that's right. Through their own app. Booking's not available on uh, websites, including their own. It's all through the app. And uh, the app has got what's going to allow you to uh, check in, you know, book your flight, check in, and also uh, buy things in the air, like get the catering menu and make your purchases, including merchandise. And I kid you not, they've got Bonza branded budgie smugglers. Oh, good Lord. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, budgie smugglers, also referred to as DTs, I'll let you figure that one out because T stands for togs, Um, the skimpy speedos, uh, the speedos that uh, you often see people wearing at the beach, many of whom should not, Um, cringeworthily, cringeworthily a former prime minister of ours was often seen in them. But, Uh, yes. uh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, look, I don't know. Um, There's some commentary here. I see the business model that they're using is being compared to that of Ryanair in Europe. So, well, you could look at that both ways, Grant, because, you know, every, everybody I know that's flown Ryanair hates it. But, uh, boy, that's a successful business model. So maybe it will work. They're going to be going to destinations too that aren't, you know, that don't mirror the same mistakes, if I can put it that way, of some of the other previous airlines that have gone in and tried to, you know, take on the, the you know, Virgin and Qantas here. They're, they're going to go to some alternate destinations. So, That'll be interesting to see how that works out for them. Um, I just cannot believe, frankly, that they're going with this sort of jingoistic 
marketing. It just seems to me, it just screams low cost. But hey, Grant, people flew Tiger Airways too and look what happened there. Yeah, you and I have both flown them. And uh, yeah, look, they are doing, uh, it looks like they're trying to get a lot of Victorians who want to go north um, to escape the cold because they're doing Melbourne and Avalon. Um, They're also doing Albury, which is uh, actually New South Wales, but right on the border and Mildura in the northwest. And they'll be doing things like disappearing up to Port Macquarie, Newcastle, Coffs Harbour, Maroochydore, Bundaberg, Gladstone, Rockhampton, Mackay, Proserpine, Townsville and Cairns. All the Most of the last lot were all in Queensland. Look, interesting, uh, Grant. Uh, the other thing that they're doing, of course, is that they're having a competition to name some of their uh, Max 8 aircraft that they're getting. And uh, for our Australian listeners, well, if they're going to be called Bonzo Airlines, I think they should be named after this guy. Ah, oh, geez, uh, 10 o'clock already. Absolutely, King Bonzo the Charismatic. <laughs> What a legend that gentleman was from the 80s. But, mate, their first aircraft has touched down. The paint scheme's pretty funky, the purple and all that, the Bonza with the uh, like a hand with a thumb up as the B. So, you know, they're going for it. Uh, yeah, they're definitely tapping into the, um, well, let's just say that there are some people who have uh, decided to call them Bogan Airlines. We'll hey, leave that, that one out there. Me. That was only me before we started recording, Grant. How could you say that? Well, you know, if shoe fits, wear it. Uh, so anyway, if folks, if you want to have a look, you can check their website, flybonza.com. I don't know. Good luck to them. I just, I don't know. It just, me, it just screams air cringeworthy is what it seems like to me. <laughs> I don't think you're part of the target market there, mate. Uh, yes. Well, I think that's probably true, my friend. Okay. Let's shoot across to defence. You know, Grant, I was listening to the radio the other day and I just happened to tune in a new service that just happens to be syndicated right across this great nation and I heard these two guys. The US Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps have temporarily granted their F-35 Lightning II fleets for inspection after an issue was discovered with a vital component of the ejection seat system in a small number of jets last April. In a statement, the Department of Defence says Australia's F-35s will continue to fly following an independent risk assessment, and Grant McHeron from Australian Defence Magazine says they'll be keeping a close eye on any developments. The RAAF will have performed a risk assessment and determined that they are unlikely to have exposure to the component in question, thus there's no need for a stand-down. Australia currently has 72 of the fifth-generation fighter jets on order, with around 55 delivered so far. Steve Vischer, Air News. I tell you what, Grant, those guys sound like they're really slick. They know what they're talking about. Yeah, that was very professional sounding. Well, we should meet them. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we know? We've, we've read a fair bit about uh, the uh, the ejection seat issues that have been found in a small handful of uh, US mm-hmm. and actually Israeli F-35s as well. Uh, the Royal Australian Air Force here, though, um, they're not going to stand down at this point. So uh, as you said in that article, it's, it's been risk assessed and that's where yeah. we're at. Yeah, uh, it, it's all batch controlled, of course, and uh, the indications are that the batches in question that uh, contain the faulty items uh, never made it to the aircraft that are now down here. Uh, of course, don't forget, it's not just the F-35, but it turns out that the cartridge problem can also be affecting additional aircraft such as Classic Hornets, Super Hornets, Growlers, T-45 Goshawk, and the F-5 Tiger II Trainers. So, wow, uh, that's that's really quite a lot of aircraft that are uh, exposed here. But it seems that for the RAF, they've done their checks and they don't think they've, they're exposed. Of course, that wouldn't also happen to do with the fact that it's August. And what happens in August? Oh, pitch black. Pitch black, yes. Yes, every two years. <laughs> our, our biggest defence exercise every two years. Uh, you can't really call it like an Aussie red flag because it's nowhere near the scope of red flag. But you've got uh, – typically you'll have multiple foreign air, um, air forces and navies joining in. It's it's a massive air 
combat simulation and you don't just have aircraft versus aircraft but it's strike attacks on the ground it's the whole works it's a pretty amazing um, exercise i remember 2014 being up in darwin and being on base at darwin and also at tyndall getting lots of interviews absolutely amazing so much going on yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's good if they've grounded half the US Air Force. That'll give our guys a better chance. I don't see anything wrong with that at all. <laughs> yeah, any opportunity, right? Yeah, well, of course, you know, uh, Australia is, um, you know, our Air Force at the moment is still in a, a transition period. I mean, you know, the, the older Hornets have uh, all been retired now. They, we still haven't got the full fleet that we've ordered of F-35. So we're not really in a position, as I see it, to be standing those jets down unless it's a really, really verified bad situation, which, uh, as you Say, great, it isn't right now. So uh, we need those jets to be up there flying. We need uh, the the um, conversion training, I guess, for former Hornet pilots to be continuing. Um, and we need to, you know, be getting our, our pilots kept at peak proficiency uh, in the operation of those jets. So it, it makes sense to me that they're going to keep running them for now. Well, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk or this month's Australia Desk. What has it been, three months since this the last quarters? One, yeah, it was back in May. Yes. Well, I guess we'll rest up for another three months and we'll – We'll probably come back then. Until then, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. You know, Steve, I find it kind of interesting that the people doing bonds are ex-virgins. Okay, that must be an edit point. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not no, another three months. I, I I miss those guys. You know, they yeah. we used to have so much fun. I, I learned to speak another language thanks to them. <laughs> uh, but, but I have to tell you, I, I'm amazed at many of the things they say, but... Budgie tuggers. I don't know. I mean, come on, guys. Budgie tuggers. Oh, God. All right. It's another language. Our friend Hillel Glazier covers Oshkosh as our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent. And he's done that for a couple of years. Now, this year at Oshkosh, Hillel interviewed a number of people, and he calls this uh, kind of the Beyond the Press Release series. And what he tried to do was to get some business executives at Oshkosh kind of open up about their companies, say more than just what we can all read in their press releases, and ask them some, you know, some good, solid questions. So we're going to spread these interviews over a number of different episodes, but we're going to kick it off this episode with Hillel speaking with Sean Nielsen from Cirrus. This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast with another installment of Beyond the Press release here at AirVenture 2022 in Oshkosh. I'm here and have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Nielsen, CEO of Cirrus Aircraft. Sean, welcome Thank to you. the Airplane Geeks podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure to be here. You know, I look back just now at our uh, archives. We have never interviewed executives from Cirrus. Okay, well. So I am super lucky. <laughs> have you been to AirVenture before? I have. This is my third time. Third time. Yeah. So it sounds like you only came when you became CEO of Cirrus. Uh, that is true. That is true. Um, uh, I actually you know, live in Chicago. I have a home in, in Duluth also. So, you know, Oshkosh is not that far away, but uh, it, it's still... It's still sort of um, uh, four or five hours away. So you, you, unless you're in the industry, it's, it's sort of unlikely that you are going to come you, up. Yeah, you come up. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose so. But you don't have any shortage of airplanes to get here. So. No, 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 no. So we're in good shape now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, what do you think so far? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it is Oshkosh is has always been part of the company's DNA all the way back from the from the founders. You know, uh, the Klapmeyers. Uh, uh, which founded the company in, in 1984 and, and started out, you know, making the 
you know, the kid airplane, the, the, the VK-30, and, and later on, obviously, jumped into, you know, the SR-20 family and so forth. But it has always been sort of at the bedrock of what the company is about. And it's grown in size, you know, and, and presence every single year to um, actually every night we now have like a little barbecue station at, at what we call Cirrus Village. And it started out literally being a grill and a couple of bottles of wine. And now we probably feed three, 400 people <laughs> every night at the barbecue station with drinks and so forth. And there's, you know, the speeches and, you know, bands and stuff like that. It's just a, it's really, a, it's become part of the Cirrus life. Yeah. In fact, um, what many of our listeners may not realize, you, you touched on it actually, is that uh, Cirrus, for those who haven't researched it beyond the parachute, has started out, like you said, as a, yep. a kit builder in the experimental yep. place. And they moved into certificated which yes. is its own level of triple and error yes and so if you could just real quick uh, for context purposes do you I'm assuming you've learned about the transition from experimental to certificated sure. yeah. and what was the vision then no pun intended yeah. Yeah. to the founders to go into certificated well I mean I think uh, and I can't speak for for Dale and and, uh, and his brother obviously but uh, they, they just love the idea of of aviation, right? Building a better airplane and a safer airplane, and so forth. And I think they started out, learned a bunch on on the, you know the, the the first kit, and realized that the design, if you needed, if if you wanted to have a certified airplane, and a more sort of commercially applicable airplane with with broader appeal, they needed to change the design, right? And they also wanted to put in a parachute, um, you know, into the aircraft, which was really the start of the SR20, right? Mm -hmm. Where they wanted to build something different. Right, something that was a safer airplane, more comfortable airplane, more capable airplane with a parachute. And I'm sure back back then, you know, all you know, you, you, you give up a lot of, of weight, you know, when you have a 200 pound parachute outside with a rocket, you know, propelled, uh, you know, mechanism that, that gets it, uh, you know, out fast. So you, you you're you're adding cost, you're adding weight which comes at the expense of you could have had another passenger, you could have carried more fuel, but that was very core to what they wanted to do. They wanted to change aviation, right? And how do you change aviation? You gotta bring more people into it. And what's what's the first thing people think about is safety, right? So if you can tell people, well, it's got a parachute. Well, okay, so now if you're going to go fly an airplane, it's gotta be a Cirrus, right? And so there's sort of this spousal acceptance factor that that uh, uh, is more uh, it's easier to climb when there's a parachute you know on the airplane so i think that's what they saw back then and uh, to build a better product yeah. makes sense then if they're really shooting for safety yeah. and acceptance yeah. that they're not going to get that with the word experimental printed on the side true. of the plane true yep yep <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah i can see that how um how is the how the needs that Cirrus fills changed since that initial let's get into certificated aircraft? Yeah. How the, how's that market evolved? Um, so the way we think about uh, the market, instead of focusing on sort of trading market share with the other competitors on the market, for us it's really about getting more people into aviation in the first place. Um, because uh, it, it, Right now, and not to you know, go into too many statistics, but we probably have 55% of the global market share within our category. And we're growing you know, probably 10% a, a year, um, yeah, year over year. So eventually you're gonna run out of customers to sell to, right? Yeah. Unless you, you, you create a bigger pie. So what's, where do you start? Like you gotta bring more people into aviation. And it's sort of broadly known that about 90% of people that start their 
PPL license, never finish it, right? So if you can lower that bar to just 80% of people dropping out, you essentially double the market. Like you have twice as many people to sell to. So that's where we start. Like we start at how do we make it easier and more predictable to get your private license? And then how do you make the airplane safer and easier to fly and easier to own and operate, trade in afterwards, finance, insure, all the things that sort of go along with the aircraft ownership. So, so that's where we start. So what, when we talk about market share, to me, uh, the market opportunity is infinite. It's not just the other 44% or whatever is left of the market. It's really growing a much bigger market. And uh, so we've been focusing on not only creating a, 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 a better product, a better airplane, expanding the product portfolio, but also all the surfaces that go around it. So you don't just go down into your local Chase uh, bank and, and say, okay, I, I want to buy a million dollar airplane, can you finance it, right? It's, it's a sort of a specialty function. Mm -hmm. The same with insurance, the same with hangar space and maintenance and parts distribution and all the things that go along with it. And if we can build that ecosystem and have the best product and the best ecosystem, I think the market is infinite. Speaking of, so do you think Cirrus might be going after a market of owners who might not be able to afford the current line of? Was there anything in the future of the product roadmap for that? Um, also, right now, uh, the, the demand for the, the current product, right, is we're more than two and a half years out now. So if you place an order today, you're waiting two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So the market that can afford, um, you know, essentially an airplane that starts at $500,000, mm -hmm. you, you can step your way up with all the options, obviously, is still very large. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we don't feel we need to make a more uh, affordable solution because as you sort of try and, and go down in price, right, you also have to take value out. And that's usually safety features, it's parachutes, it's other things, right? And there's there's just... Um, like value and safety come with a price tag. Right. right? So, so we're trying to produce the most affordable plane we can without compromising on safety. Right. We can get if we were to completely nerd out about you know what's in the plane, we could probably talk about okay, maybe not carbon avionics, or sure. maybe not this, or maybe not that. But I understand why yeah. you wouldn't want to do that. Sure. Yeah. So clearly, the SR series was a hit, and the Vision Jet is wildly popular. And while the Vision Jet is one of the lowest cost, legit jets, you know, jets on the market, yeah. as far as the SR series, it's no secret that they're not cheap. We just talked about that. Yeah. Whether you're going to buy it or rent it, they're still you know, cost. Having said that, besides good taste and worried about safety, what would you say are the key characteristics of what pilots are looking for when they settle on actually going into debt for a series? <laughs> <laughs> and so when I when I look at all the things that is in the Vision Jet, I mean it's a Collier winning airplane, yeah. right? or the SR, so, yeah, yeah. But let's just you know st stick with the yeah. with the jet. So the operating cost in and of itself is significantly less than um, similar capable airplanes, mm -hmm. like by by uh, an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. It's it's a very simple airplane to uh, pilot on your own. You don't need two pilots, right? Um, it's obviously got a parachute on it. It's it's got a Collier, you know, stamp of approval of quality on it. Um, it, it it's very easy to step up from a piston airplane, you know, from the SR series into the jet because of the commonalities. Like as an example, the approach speed in the in the uh, you know, the landing speed in the jet is about 85 knots. It's about 80 knots in the in the SR, right? Mm -hmm. um, stall characteristics, you know, uh, avionics, uh, you know. 
uh, where the, where all the buttons are. Like it's very very similar. So stepping up, you know, stepping into an SR20 up to a 22, 22T, and into a jet, it's a very natural, fluid, you know, uh, transition, which is very appealing. Like so, we didn't build the uh, the Vision Jet to sort of pull down uh, jet customers from other you know five ten million dollar airplanes we built it so that our current customers could continue to step up to match the mission that they wanted to fulfill right because obviously it goes higher faster further carries more and so forth and and once you've done the 22t for let's let's call it five or ten years you might be ready for the jet experience yeah. so so and there was some of the you know primary reasons behind it our um, one of our co-hosts is uh, is a vision jet instructor, yeah. and so he takes a lot of people out for their required was twenty five hours of uh, co. Yeah, yeah, the mentor, yeah, yeah mentor program. Yeah. So he's he's obviously a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> so in many ways, a Cirrus uh, of any kind, whether it's the SR or vision jet, of course, yeah. is in a class by itself. If you want to look at it that way, I suspect that fact though doesn't give you or the company a sense of complacency. We all know what happens to companies that get complacent. Yeah. So how does Cirrus ensure that it always stays relevant? And captures or creates new market share. If you're not trying to take it out of the you know, other, if you're not trying to the other to get the other 45 percent, you're trying to create yeah. bigger yeah. a bigger pie, yeah. right? Yeah. So how do you um, grow that pie, knowing that the population of people who can afford it are, uh, you know, is still not the biggest part of the population? Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people out in the North 40, yeah. you know, who have planes of, hundred, you know, collectively hundred thousands of years of experience, yeah. collectively that are never going to be able to afford it, right? But so that, so that by definition means the market isn't the entire market. Yeah. So how do you how do you um, grow that? You mentioned it earlier, but without you know without being complacent that you've got it all figured out yeah. because somebody might be able to come in and start eating away at what yeah. you do have. So, um, I mean, G one, G two, G threes are selling for a few hundred thousand dollars today, right? And they're they're fantastic airplanes. You know, they uh, we maintain parts and. And, and off all, all sorts of services, right? So th it, there are ways to get into the, the serious life uh, without buying new, right? Mm -hmm. So we make sure that, that the residual values of the existing fleet is good and high and well-supported and so forth. So that's one way of making sure that it's, you know, we, 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 uh, we cater to everybody. Now on the innovation side, it's super important to me and the rest of the, the team that that we don't rest on these laurels, right? That uh, and you take the jet. We launched it in 2016 timeframe, and we've already gone through generation one, two, and 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 G2 plus, right? Most recently, we added what we call hot and high, uh, so 25% more thrust takeoff power at, at at high and hot altitudes, and Wi-Fi, right? So Wi-Fi is something that you you're accustomed to in a you know big commercial Boeing, not in a in a GI uh, so GA you know market space. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to take these big technologies and make them smaller and put them into GA, where, and, and and not just for the for for the gimmick of it, but for the value of it. Right? There's now that person can be productive in flight between meetings or, or and so forth. So it becomes this sort of time machine. So um, it's it's obviously expensive to have a high revolution on, on uh, evolution, so to speak, mm -hmm. rolling out these things. But we just think it's so important because we always start with safety in mind, right? It's like, how can we make it safer and better and take pilot workload off, you know, the pilot? And if you can give somebody more thrust to get out of an airport, 
that's helpful, right? <laughs> You're not going to hit the mountain in front of you, right? right? And, 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 and um, ski in more interesting places. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> uh, so there's those benefits also for sure. And then Wi-Fi, right? Meaning you can now plan your hotel, your rental car from the air, right? If you have to, you know, pick an alternate airport if if there's bad weather and those sorts of things. So there's there's all sorts of you know side benefits with having. Uh, or over-indexing on innovation, mm -hmm. which is super important to us. Yeah. But it's always with safety in mind. It's not, um, oh, can we throw some sort of feature on that we can charge for? It's always with safety, uh, safety in mind. Yeah, Makes the, yeah it, it, that's very clear. So switching gears just some, somewhat, a little bit more about you. You've only taken over since about three years ago. Yeah, yeah three um, and a half, yeah. yeah and, and you took over from one of the original founders who sure. had come back to run the company. Yeah. Can you share what that was like and what's it like to actually, you know, how does it affect your role that you are, you know, taking over from one of the guys that actually started the company? You know, you're an outsider. I'm guessing you're not a pilot. And not yet, but I, yet. I do fly, yeah. Oh, yeah, good, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. You're working on that. That's good. So if you're a student pilot, you are a pilot. You're a student pilot. That's good. So what's it like, though, taking over from the founder? It must kind of be a little bit of intimidating, I would imagine, or something. To be, uh, to be honest, I, I don't think about it. Yeah. Um, obviously, you don't want to let anybody down. Right, and you want to make sure that you carry on the legacy and so forth, but also put your own fingerprint on the company, right? And but I really think of it as a team rather than sort of an individual. Like, um, you know, there's, you know, the company is coming up on 40 years old, um, and and I won't be the last CEO. There's going to be somebody, you know, taking over after me eventually, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I'm sort of a custodian of of the brand, and and my job is to. To make sure that, that the next couple of decades are, are well taken care of, and we grow the backlog, and we we take care of our customers and our staff. I mean, we've hired and almost 400, I think, 402 people last year. Mm -hmm. We added to the company, and we plan to add another 400 this year. Wow. Right? So, it's very much around you know uh, 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 growing the company uh, and the community that we serve. Um, so I don't really think about. Uh, you know that that I'm taking over or I took over after the founder. Um, I, I'm I'm thinking about how how do we create a, a better company, uh, a, a safer company, uh, how we have great products, how we build the ecosystem. There's certainly some things that that um, I can't do that the founders could. You know, in terms of the the product itself back then. But I I bring a lot of uh, background from technology, from Bang & Olds and from Tesla and so forth, where I add things that they would never have thought about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is good. I mean, it's this that's the natural order of things, that's right? What you want, right? yeah. And um, so the, the the very connected, you know, uh, aircraft that we're that we are uh, pursuing now, the ecosystem around, you know, the the ownership experience, are, are definitely things that we are driving harder now than we ever have. Cool. So you actually brought it up. It's a great segue. So you came from Tesla. Sure. Uh, and if I so Tesla, as many of Elon Musk's current endeavors, uh, is known for a lot of on-the-fly innovation and pushing features out, like mm -hmm. constant updates yep. and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, clearly, you can't exactly do that with certificated aircraft. Yep. Nonetheless, uh, what sort of engineering or production or programmatic techniques do you think the aviation manufacturing industry can learn from companies like Tesla and their, yeah. and, or SpaceX sure, who yeah. have this innovative kind of uh, iterative and incremental approach yeah. to improvement? So, so um, those, that's some of the things that I'm bringing along, you know, obviously, and, and uh, uh, sort of a visualization of that is Cirrus IQ. Mm -hmm. So Cirrus IQ is essentially a box that we put on the SR20 model year 2020, mm -hmm. which is um, a little device that can wake up the airplane remotely, mm. and we can you know see fuel, um, oil, 
uh, oxygen, a bunch of sort of vital signs for pre-flight purposes, mm -hmm. um, sort of remotely. Mm -hmm. Now, when the, the plane lands, it essentially spits out everything that happened during that flight, mm -hmm. almost like the black box, but just right. like millions of co lines of code right. that comes out, and obviously the customer has to give their consent. And, and it goes into you know, our data warehouse, and everything is there. Like, so we can take that data now and repurpose that back to services to the customer. So for instance, if they're running the engine you know, too hard, like they're gonna chew through their warranty too fast. Right? So we can advise them, hey, you might wanna you know, uh, do, do the, you know, the fuel mixture a little bit differently or you know, pull back to you know, uh, max continuous you know, cruise a little sooner or whatever the case may be. Or in a flight training you know, scenario, we could you know, give them, hey, this is how you typically land. Like instead of landing at 3% angle, you, you're landing consistently at five. Like you wanna change that, right? Or you're coming in too fast. You, know, you, you really should be at 80 knots instead of 95 knots, right? Or you, conti you know, continuously land five feet left of the runway and halfway <laughs> down. Like this is how you wanna you know, uh, uh, do better. Mm -hmm. So by creating those dashboards and reports and serving them up literally in, in an app, right? And there's a series of Q app, we can say, hey, you just you just did this flight. We can see you're doing these things continuously wrong or not perfect. Why don't we give you a free a free uh, uh, flight lesson with one of our CSIP instructors on us, right? And go practice this. Right? That makes a, them a better pilot. It's fun to go out and practice with an instructor, right? And from an insurance perspective, you're you're a safer pilot. Right, and it, it, ultimately, it doesn't disrupt your back. Uh, you know, your your. O&M. No, exactly. Because of, they break the plane sooner, that goes into your backlog yeah, yeah, yeah. O&M. It's keeping them out <laughs> of your it, shop. But, but it's also um, you know, predictive maintenance, right. preventative maintenance, um, a bunch of things like that we can, we can offer up. So um, in terms of this, this innovation, or, or you know, to your point, what, what we can learn from companies like, um, like Tesla, those are some of the things I'm bringing along. Like, hey, let's, let's build that up because it has value to, for the customer mm -hmm. right? and, for, and to us mm -hmm. and our sub-suppliers that now can get data on, on how their parts are, are functioning. So um, extracting a little bit more intelligence out of Tesla for a second. <laughs> um, would there happen to be any connection there with your background at an electric vehicle company and Sirius is perhaps near-term or mid-term aspirations? for electric aircraft, or is that a coincidence? Uh, that, that's coincidental. Okay. <laughs> um, there's still a long road ahead for electric airplanes. Mm -hmm. uh, the charging cycles and things like that is one big one. Um, you know, the power uh, ratio, um, you know, for, for the, you know, the batteries are heavy, mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, I don't know what the, what the average is up to, but it's 20, 30 minutes of flight, right? That, that you know the players are getting out of it, and that's just not the market we're in. Like we're flying, we're flying six, eight, nine hundred nautical miles, right? And and we need to be able to touch down anywhere, you know, regardless of a charging station or not. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of um, technology that's not ready yet for us to to uh, sort of bet on it. Now electric's coming, right? Uh, there's there's um, lots of movements in that direction, but. Um, for us right now in the market we we serve, it's it's not ready yet. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean we're not learning about it. We're not investing in in um, in, in uh, uh, testing and so forth. But commercially, we haven't made that bet yet. Cool. Well, we've already pushed out your next couple of meetings, and we've taken a bunch of your time. I want to thank you very much for being with us on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Sure. Is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners that I, we haven't covered? No, I mean I think we we we. 
made it around the uh, you know the circle. Uh, yeah. But it's for for us again. It, we, what we're trying to do is uh, create more pilots, right, and create an ecosystem that is just unique and and welcoming to everybody, just uh, regardless of of age or skill or. And that's why it needs to be easier to fly the plane. It needs to be safer. It needs to be easier to own it and, and learn how to fly. So that's what we're working hard on, so, so more people can enjoy aviation. Well, I'm almost convinced. I don't think my checkbook's convinced, but I'm convinced. <laughs> it's all about priorities. It is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's Sean. Thank you very much again. Thank you. And uh, I'll let you know when it's on. Right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lyle. Appreciate that. We have a number, as I mentioned, we have a number of other great interviews coming up. And we'll feed those in as we go along. A couple of quick shout-outs. Um, well, from uh, from Micah. First of all, the Owl's Head Transportation Mu- Museum has launched a capital campaign, just under $10 million, to expand the museum, the space, and the educational programs. If you've never been to the Owl's Head Transportation Museum in Maine, which is in Owl's Head, Maine, it is worth a visit. I don't know, Maria, if you've been there or not, but they just had their annual Wings and Wheels event just this past weekend, uh, which I've attended once, and I really want to do this again. Have you been up there for that, Maria? Yes, we've been up there. We Before the pandemic, we used to have an annual meeting with a lot of aviators and industry representatives, and the museum is fabulous. It's phenomenal. I don't think I've ever walked into a museum and been more immediately impressed with the the collection in terms of the variety, mm-hmm. the the time span covering. Uh it's it's just a an amazing collection at least in my opinion. Yeah. Um so this is great. They're looking to expand the museum and uh, as I mentioned the the Wings and Wheels was just this past weekend. Definitely a bucket list kind of a kind of an event. And then Micah also gives us a follow-up on the uh, Spurwing Farm pancake breakfast and fly-in this year. He says, this week I ran into Jonathan Good, FAA inspector, air traffic controller, and the fly-in air boss. He told me, Micah, that uh, he and his controllers handled 70 aircraft in a four-hour period. That's more than the Portland jet port sees in a full 24 hours. Micah says it's not a record for aircraft, but records were set in other areas. Over 1,000 people were in attendance. That Wow, that's a, I knew the crowd was big. Over 1,000 people were in attendance, and over 500 pancake breakfasts were served, which means that EAA Chapter 141 cooked over 1,000 pancakes. This is the most breakfasts and biggest attendance uh, than any other time in the 25-year history of the fly-in. Yeah. It, it, was, it was great. Um, pancakes were awesome. Again, with the um, Maine blueberries and Maine maple <laughs> syrup. <laughs> Not to mention Maine at all. Not to mention. But, uh, yeah, there, there, was a, you know, there was a great uh, divergence of different types of aircraft. Yes. Uh, and, and it was a lot of fun to see them. And, and I don't think, to David's earlier point about uh, we're going to get letters, I don't think we're going to accept any complaints about the Spurwink Farm uh, event because those those letters, those emails will fall flat on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> the only amazing thing about these numbers is it, sa- it says there were 1,000 people in attendance. 
and 500 pancake breakfast. That means there were 500 people that didn't eat their pancakes. I'm I'm just flabbergasted. I think um, next next year, I think we ought to have like pancake police or something going around. And <laughs> I, I ate my breakfast. I almost wanted to go back for seconds. I know. I almost did too. Did. Or does that mean they were eating someone else's pancakes? I don't know. Would be true. Mm. No. On to listener mail. Uh, Graham wrote to us. He said, I must take issue with your comments in episode 707, which you talk about the origins of the 747 being in the cargo contract, which Lockheed's C-5 eventually won. He says, I refer you to Robert Serling's authoritative history of Boeing. It's titled Legend and Legacy, which describes that particular story as, quote, one of aviation's most persistent myths. So... Graham says, uh, Serling comments that the 747 was designed to be able to lard cargo through its nose at Juan Tripp's insistence because Tripp believed that in another 10 years, everyone would be flying around in supersonic transports. See how that worked out. And the 747 would end up being used mostly for air freight. Boeing's proposed design for the C-5 contract was actually a high-wing airplane that Serling describes as looking more like a fat-bellied B-52. So uh, I've never I've never read that book. Uh, it'd probably be something worth getting your your hands on. Might be hard to get a hold of. I I think Amazon uh, you can get a a Kindle version for free if you're if you're into that. But thanks Graham for sending that in. Also, Steve wrote in, said, hello, fellow airplane geeks. I'd like to start by saying how much I enjoy the podcast every week. Just a great mix of information with some great humor thrown in along the way. I just wanted to share a few pictures that I captured at this year's Oshkosh. I'm a flightline volunteer, which affords me the opportunity to be up close and personal with many aircraft types while out on the airport. What did we hear last time, Rob, that there were, what, 5,000 volunteers at Oshkosh this past year? I think that was the number. Oh, it's it's a Phenomenal. huge amount, huge number, I should say. And, and you won't believe where there are volunteers. They, yeah. they get people to volunteer to drive trucks to, that empty the... Okay, well, we won't go down that yeah, road. Everything. They they do the really the real dirty. Work. When you think about six hundred thousand plus people over the course of a week, there's a lot of work to be done. But anyway, back to Steve. He says, while volunteering this week, I had many Cirrus aircraft pass by me. Some repeatedly as they were doing demo rides, both piston-powered and vision jets. I'm attaching an image of one of the vision jets. Love the paint scheme. He says, that taxied by me too many times to count. However. I just uh, I was just through with my shift when I captured it departing on another demo flight. The second, while a beautiful aircraft, also brought back memories of recently gone west and very missed launch pad. It was a Focke-Wulf FWP-149D. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess so many people confuse it with a Navion that when it was parked, <laughs> I get this, it had a sign on the window that read, quote, not a Navion. I hope you enjoy the pictures. See, I uh, hope to meet some of you at Oshkosh 23. So thanks, Steve. We're going to put a couple of Steve's photos in the show notes uh, for this episode. I assume that's okay with him, uh, this vision jet and the and the Fock Wolf. And then uh, last week uh, we talked about Theodore Roosevelt flying on a Wright Brothers uh, flyer. So 
We got an email from one of our listeners. He says, Hi, Geeks. I was listening to episode 710, which was excellent as always. Thank you. When your listener mail section talked about Teddy Roosevelt flying in an airplane. I went looking for more information and came across this movie documenting the flight, which I think you will find most interesting. And there's a YouTube video. It's it's just three minutes, so it's, uh, it's a quick watch. Um, but uh, he says, not only did the right flyer be or A-B, depending on what you read, get off the ground, the pilot appears to have done a bit of showing off that, uh, that day that, that today could result in issues with the FAA. I think this would be the seventh or eighth named type of right flyer. By the time of this flight on October 11, 2010, Roosevelt had already left the office of president. This mention of Tody, uh, Tody, this mention of Teddy Roosevelt uh, has some special interest for me as I am involved. Oh, this is cool in the restoration of an electric interurban streetcar named Narcissus that Roosevelt uh, rode on while campaigning in Maine. God, it keeps coming back to Maine in 1914. So uh, we'll have this. Uh, video in the show notes. It's kind of interesting because it appears that at first when invited to go for a ride in this right flyer, uh, Roosevelt declines, uh, but then apparently he changes his mind. And so you can actually watch him getting into this contraption, which is kind of difficult for a, a large individual getting through all of the guy wires and you know all of the, the, the wing components. And then we also heard from Rick, who said, uh, or who passed along a a URL. Uh, He said, catching up on past episodes, this might help. Uh, It's about this uh, same flight. Duration appears to be four minutes. And this is a great shot of uh, Teddy Roosevelt with his pilot, Moxie, in the right flyer. And so we'll put that in the show notes also. It's a really cool photo. Take a look at that. And also watch the video. But uh, thanks. Some great listener mail coming in. We really appreciate that. You can send us your your mail to us. That address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Our website is airplanegeeks.com. We want to thank you all for, for listening. We also want to thank our guest, Maria Harrison-Dooley. Maria been a pleasure. Tell us again where we can find uh, find the website. It's www.youflygal.org. Cool. Easy to remember. Easy to remember. You fly gal. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you, if not at Spurwink, uh, perhaps at Oshkosh. Let's see. Uh, Rob, uh, let's see. Max Trescott had a uh, hard drop-off. What do you call that? He had to leave uh, for something that he's doing. I don't know what he's doing, but... He ejected. He ejected. David Vanderhoof, uh, tell us where we can find uh, the museum. More about you. Uh, you can, well, if you're interested in the museum, the museum's address is the American Helicopter dot museum. Um, you, you can find me there, um, and of course, you can find me um, lurking in our Slack listener team. You do that by sending us an email to uh, the Geeks at airplanegeeks.com. and of course, all of the social media places you know where to look already. Very good. And Rob Mark, how about you? I I like the way David put it about all the social media places that you already know about. And if you don't know about them, look us up 
Uh, but <laughs> so jet, jetwine.com, of course, where Scott Spangler and I hang out. And, uh, of course, uh, within the pages of uh, uh, business and commercial aviation on the Aviation Week site. And uh, uh, I think that's it for now, except, boy, you know, this episode made me very hungry tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Have some pancakes, Rob. All right, you can find me at 30,000feet.com. It's just a simple, silly vanity page, but it lists the podcast and other places where you might find me hanging out. And so we'll ask that you please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. Bye. Good night. Good night. Keep the blue side up, and thanks for not talking about pancakes. <laughs> and blueberries. I've been some great pancakes and curling. <laughs>